Web3 with me is a discussion style show where creators, marketers, entrepreneurs, and investors share how they are solving the core problem plaguing Web3, perception. The perception problem is preventing mass adoption. It is narrative, framing, and terminology, and it's inhibiting onboarding, engagement, and retention of users and customers. Web3 currently requires a level of technical understanding and responsibility due to a lack of protections that the masses do not currently desire. Web3 with me will provide insights for Web3 native companies and others considering a Web3 strategy to tackle that perception problem. My guest today is Mark Soares, CMO and founder of Blockhouse, a marketing agency and product lab built for what's next. Prior to Blockhouse, Mark spent eight years at Nikon. His entire professional career has been an exploration of art and technology through the lens of both engineers and consumers. We discuss the commonalities between cameras and blockchain, the unique way Mark built Blockhouse to align incentives better with brands, and how to avoid an engagement Ponzi. Most exciting about this episode is today, Mark launches a brand new gaming studio called Gojira Labs. It will use a unique technology called animatronic NFTs or ANFTs to bring a whole new level of community powered entertainment. LFG baby, let's start vibing. Zach French is a bar certified attorney and nothing expressed by Zach during Web3 with me shall be considered legal advice. All the opinions expressed by Zach and his guests are solely their own opinions. All content in Web3 with me is for informational purposes only. Zach and his podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed during Web3 with me. Well, welcome to the show, Mark. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this conversation since we chatted earlier a few weeks ago. Um, seems like you have uncovered a part of, of Web3 that I didn't know existed, uh, which is really uh, rare, first of all, but also like really appreciate your thinking. I've been absorbing uh, your writing recently and some of the other shows that you've been on. Um, so I'm looking forward to breaking it down. Um, but I always like to start by letting my audience get to know my guests, what makes them tick, what makes Mark Mark. So feel free to start wherever you want in your founding story. Well, I should say first, uh, Zach, really appreciate you having me on. Uh, it was great chatting with you. I guess it's been a couple of weeks. It feels uh, weird in this space. You can never tell the time. But um, yeah, so a little bit about me. I guess I have always been a technologist. I, I, love, I love tech. I love art. Uh, I've always lived in, the, in that intersection of uh, tech and art. And I've always also lived in, the, in between engineers and consumers. I was evaluating, you know, what are the common patterns in my life? And that actually is one very strong common pattern where I have to take what engineers say, which I'm technical enough to, you know, mostly understand, and then I communicate it to people who are not technical, who don't care to, to understand the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the inner workings of the technology. And so, and then I realized, of course, that's, that's marketing, right? Like you, as long as you're reaching the right user in the process, then you're, effectively doing marketing. Um, I, uh, you know, I've had a long career in marketing and in, in the consumer uh, electronics space. I used to run uh, marketing communications for a company called Nikon. I love, I, I love the tools that allow you to make creative things or that empower you to be creative. So I've always been fascinated with cameras, which are really complex, you know, technological devices. Um, and, wanted to learn everything about them and I did um, for the most part and then I I 
really loved working with people that use those tools to, to create art, which which I did around the world uh, in my career at Nikon. Um, and from there, I, I started Blockhouse. And it was actually, it came from a, an understanding of blockchain and this kind of realization that well, maybe maybe the fiat system isn't isn't what it you know everyone thinks it is, uh, and maybe Bitcoin has a lot of potential. This this was when in 2015 when I first learned about Bitcoin, uh, and got me involved in blockchain, and then in 2017 I, I really got involved as a more active participant uh, in the space, and then you know two years ago in 2021 I, I decided I needed to really become professionally involved. Uh, and use what I know about marketing to actually help the space, which I think for some reason there aren't that many marketers in the category. Um, and I'm proud to, to be one of them. So There aren't that many traditional marketers. I think there's a lot of people who hold themselves out as marketers. Mm -hmm. um, there's been uh, a blurring of the lines between community manager and marketer. Mm -hmm. um, and to, to, to be respectful there, I mean, the the role of a community manager manager does overlap a lot with marketing a, a good community manager um, but i find it i find it very very interesting that you have been at the intersection of you know communicating very technical things in a simple way for a wide audience because i mean maybe that's why i've been so excited about the show that's what I've been trying to, to do. That's the, mm -hmm. the message that I'm trying to convey through my guests, through their expertise, um, is that, you know, there is a lot to learn here from a technical perspective, but you don't have, no, not everybody wants to learn it, right? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people just want to do the thing. Uh, mm -hmm. I always say, do the thing, you know, maybe they just want to open the app and press the button, right? Um, and, one yeah. thing that Web3 has not done a good job of is meet people where they are. Um, right. So I'm glad that that you're on on the front doing that. Um, what were kind of your early earliest um, kind of observations as you entered the space in a professional way mm -hmm. in 2021? So I mean, I, I carry some learnings from uh, from my career, and I have to say, and this is no, I'm not throwing shade at the engineers. I love engineers. I lo I love the way they think. But I think engineers think that everyone thinks like them, and they don't. No. They really, truly do not. They ha engineers have a very unique uh, view of the world, and they inherently understand technology, unlike the average person. And the reason why that's really important to be aware of is that uh, an engineer has what I call the burden of knowledge. The, the engineer knows why you have to take three steps because if you didn't take three steps, it would be maybe not as secure, right? And 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 they've considered every possibility, right? But the user does not know that. But an engineer will look at it and say, hmm, well, of course, this is logical. You need to take these three steps because X, Y, and Z, right? But the, the user doesn't have that. And they'll never have that knowledge. And even if you share that knowledge with them, they'd be like, well, no, I just want it in one step. I, I get it, but I just want it in one step. And so... I think it's it's kind of fascinating to see the the two mindsets, and um, I've always found when you talk to engineers, um, they have this very clear perspective of what the technology does and what the limitations are, and they are totally comfortable with it. But a consumer or a user is unreasonable in their expectations, and you know it's just like you lay out 
like a park or 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 uh, you know some type of venue with with channels and roads and people will just cut across it because people do what people do they take the shortest path convenience is king just, yeah exactly so um some of the things that i i started to notice was in the category there was a lack of uh certainly understanding of the technology but also onboarding it re- there were so many friction points to onboard people to web3 and blockchain um, it's funny because we've gone from crypto to blockchain to Web3, all the different terms, right? And it's just really trying to package it to be more palatable for people uh, that are not in the space. But um, yeah, I think the biggest hurdle for you know most entering the space has been the onboarding. It's been the realization of, well, why do I need a wallet? Why do I need to open up anything? Why, why can't I just use Facebook or Google, sign up and, and log in and... Um, yeah, and what's the difference between me downloading an image and actually owning it? You know, those types of things are educational uh, hurdles and also engineering hurdles as well. Yeah, well, it's easy. I mean, I, I think of my own journey and my journey in terms of time really kind of coincides with yours right around January, February of 2021. Mm-hmm. And my first interactions were with Nifty Gateway. And Nifty Gateway, you could you know, for all intents and purposes, sign in with Google. I think you just had to sign in with your email. Uh, you were able to use a credit card to purchase. Um, and it made it frictionless to actually go buy. At the time, I didn't really know what it was, right? Mm-hmm. Like I knew it was called an NFT. I knew right. that uh, a lot of people were making money selling, like buying and selling these things. Uh, and I knew that I really liked the idea that it allowed anybody to be an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, now I understand there's a balancing game there, uh, in the long term, but for the most part to let people unlock their creative side and kind of, uh, you know, detach themselves from what would usually be a career determined by what corporate giant wants them to mm-hmm. build something for them. I just love that. Um, and it was frictionless at that point, but then what I was able to do is I was able to peel back the layers. Um, and that's, you know, April, May, small little bear market for the space. Um, and, uh, I learned what MetaMask was Mm -hmm. and then I was like, well, everybody needs to know what MetaMask is. So if you look at my earliest educational video, it's like, this is how you download MetaMask. Mm -hmm. And this is what, you know, once you have anything of meaningful value, you need to get this thing called a cold wallet and, and, and all this. And at the time, I think I was doing the best that was available. But now I look back at it and I'm like, it shouldn't be that hard. <laughs> right, right. It really shouldn't be that hard. And nobody's going to want to do it if it is that hard. Um, so I think we have to keep kind of a realistic perspective here. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I thinking back to 2021, where I officially uh, entered the space, even though I've been unofficially. Um, so when I entered the space in 2021, you know, this is when... I had this sudden realization. I just to give some context, I was in the, the camera and photographic industry, uh, deep in technology, and, and really understanding like, you know, there's a beautiful symmetry between blockchain and, and cameras. And I, when I tell people that I come from the camera side into blockchain, they're like, well, what's the relationship, right? Well, what's the commonality? And and the the reality is, um, they're both you know, uh, record keepers of truth. Both cameras and blockchain, they record things. Uh, and, and the 
you know, the thing that was very apparent to me was that uh, with the prevalence of AI, with the prevalence of like being able to uh, create these very realistic filters. Uh, and I remember having regular discussions with engineers about how this was going to disrupt the core inherent value of a camera because a camera, it its core value is that it can capture truth. And if it can't do that, then it's, you know, it really doesn't deliver much value to society. And that was under threat because of AI, et cetera. Well, this was 2021. And what I saw in blockchain and NFTs was a potential solve for that, where you have this beautiful, you know, ability to record truth on the blockchain and it's immutable and it's, it's wonderful because of that. And, and I remember having a lot of discussions about, well, listen, you know, you can take a photo and you can mint it as an NFT. You can, you can do that. You can see, you know, when it was created and there's obviously hurdles to, you know, to overcome. But to me, it seemed like such a beautiful, like combination of tech and art that, and also seemed essential uh, to preserve the, uh, the value of, of a whole industry. And it's actually one of the reasons, or probably the biggest reason why I decided to, to shift over to blockchain uh, was because I, I saw that, that potential. And that's when NFTs just took off. Like March 2021, April, they just went crazy. Yeah, this is, no. you know. Yeah. Complete euphoria. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, I wonder, you know, one of the, one of the different artistic spaces that has, I guess, been slower for adoption in the NFT space has been photography. Um, I know that you have a, a long history with cameras and probably understand the mind of a photographer very well. What, what is it that has led to that friction? And then what is kind of the breakthrough? What are the trends that you see coming from the photography space? Yeah, actually, um, I've, I've often discussed this uh, internally. Um, and I do have, I have tons of photographer friends. And a lot of, I know a lot of the, uh, like, globally recognized photographers. Um, and there's a, a really good reason why they haven't adopted NFTs. Uh, the main reason is that because photographers are very good at selling their work digitally. When you talk to a photographer about selling a, a work, they already understand it as, I'm selling a license for my digital photo. That's, you know, in, almost entirely their business model. But with NFTs, what we as a category did wrong is we didn't really make it clear that we were, we made it clear that we were selling the actual objects, but we didn't make it clear enough to photographers that we were selling license terms and what those were. And photographers, if you don't clarify that, they assume that they're giving their rights to the full image. And so they refuse to, to do that because, you know, they, they need, they have been accustomed to commercializing their own work and monetizing it. That's how they make a living. And so to them, um, selling an NFT was akin to selling the, the actual, what's called the raw file or the negative. Mm -hmm. uh, and they couldn't do that because then how could they possibly monetize it? The big difference here in the qualifier was that with an NFT, you're not selling the negative. Mm -hmm. You're selling the, the painting. Right, so it's like Picasso painted this piece. You're selling the work. You can exhibit it at home, right? That's mm -hmm. that's your right because you own the piece, or you can open a gallery and exhibit it there. But you certainly cannot make a T-shirt or a coffee mug and put the picture there. Mm -hmm. You don't have the commercial rights for the image. So I know it sounds like a, a a nuance, but really, had the platforms, the main platforms, defined that, photographers would have flooded in 
They would have flooded in. Um, and, you know, there's over a billion photos captured per day. You know, there's a huge market potential. And I think all it requires is very clear license terms. And then they'll all flood in because uh, certainly the current platforms that exist don't really cater to the to the artists. Um, they, they get very, very little compensation for their work. So No, they don't. And uh, it, it sounds like if I could summarize there, you've got you've got a sophisticated creator in, in photographers mm-hmm. and that they actually understood a lot of what other digital artists that have been in this space have had to learn on the fly, which is mm-hmm. how do I manage IP rights and yep. copyright around my images, around my, my work. Um, but then on the other side, you've got the ability, if done correctly, uh, to manage those immutably on the blockchain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There are now services uh, and companies that can incorporate terms of service or yep. IP rights into the smart contract that is connected to the work. Now, whether or not people will observe those uh, and how they will enforce those, I think, is still uh, a big question. Um, but you know, before. If you talk to like the uh, the PFP uh, co- communities and stuff like that, they'd have terms of service on their website, and mm-hmm. those really like legally were kind of a gray area of like what. Okay, this is when I'm minting. Maybe these are tied to minting, but when I buy it on the secondary market at OpenSea mm-hmm. or what have you, um, I'm, there's nothing here that redirects me back to the website to make me affirm that I agree to these terms. Mm-hmm. Right, which is is kind of what's required. Have you, without going on too deep of a tangent, have you explored any of these different services that are actually putting terms of service on the blockchain? Uh, I have, and I usually look at the metadata as well to you know because some of them you know just put it in the metadata, which mm-hmm. is um, you know I guess better than nothing. But I, I, I firmly believe that the next Getty Images and and Nat Geo, you know, kind of platform is going to be built on web three and either it's created by these incumbent uh, you know mega platforms or they or they will be seriously threatened because there's a gigantic benefit for artists through the royalty process to sell their work directly get royalties which is why you know a lot of artists got onboarded to blockchain in the first place was this promise of royalties which photographers by the way have always been accustomed to right because you know you use the work you get royalty. So to them, it's like, well, why are you guys getting all excited about this? We we have it. We don't make that much because, you know, the platforms are taking a big chunk of it. We see pennies of it, but it exists. So, but the, the um, I think the usage rights, the licensing, you know, a platform that defines it and allows artists to instantly mint a, a photo as an NFT and then, you know, sell it and have royalties built in and also have license terms built in with, you know, which region you want to use, what kind of commercial terms you want to use it for as, you know, kind of for the user when they're buying the NFT to select, I think it would be very successful. And it's what's needed in order to onboard that massive user base that's just dying to get into it, but they can't because you haven't made it clear. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So there's, there's room for improvement there. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I think these are the types of things that are getting built right now. Mm-hmm. Because the people that are still in this space, um, you know, look, there's still a, a small amount of speculators, but for the most part, the people that I talk to day in and day out, and I'm sure you talk to at ETH Denver and all the conferences, and they're they're here building stuff that's going to help make this a more legitimate, safe, 
uh, less technical, frictionless space to participate in. And those are the types of solutions that they need to build. Yeah. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to want the want to learn a little bit more about Blockhouse, the inspiration for Blockhouse, and your journey so far in these past two years. Um, so yeah, tell me a little bit more about it. So I mean, as uh, somebody who is tasked with managing, I've I've been managing brands for a while, um, and I was managing a consumer electronics brands, uh, and I've I had a lot of experience with uh, agencies, and so. The difference between like a Web 2 brand and a Web 3 brand is, well, there's many differences, but primarily uh, the speed of, of development is really, really, is fairly insane. Uh, people don't believe it. And until they actually experience it, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, so I realized that, first of all, in terms of a, a, a traditional brand, dealing with agencies can be really painful. Because you've got to educate them. They don't know your business as much as you do. That's generally true for any category. But there's a lot of, uh, you know, friction points in, in terms of onboarding. There's a, a, it feels like playing a game of telephone when you're working with a traditional agency. And, you know, you could go a month and a half having calls with an agency before you feel like they're getting the, the gist of it. And then the output may land fairly close to what you wanted. So there's always this this kind of um, this debate at, at big brands. There's this debate: do we should just do it internally? But they don't have the bandwidth to do it. M most marketers at big brands are like, if I could do it internally, I would do it because it's faster, it's more efficient, and that is the case much more in the startup world and Web three, because the technology is this huge hurdle. Like traditional agencies just simply don't understand it. They'll nod, you know, they'll say, yeah, Bitcoin, uh, <laughs> which they'll mean blockchain when they say Bitcoin. Yeah. They'll say, you know, NFT, uh, but they don't have a, a, any clue what it actually means. Like they have no idea. And so and and the the interesting thing is in this category, which is built mostly for, by engineers, they've done a great job like building products that revolutionize the world. Um, these engineers will will recognize immediately if you're on a call with an agency like, oh, this person does not understand what it is. <laughs> they have no idea. Uh, so they can really smell the, the BS very quickly. And I, I realized that there needs to be an agency that skips all that onboarding you know, process and that kind of really long educational onboarding um, and makes it easier for the clients, which are the brands and the startups, to just get stuff done, you know, just move, execute. And that's why Blockhouse was created. And it was created, you know, um, in May of 2021 upon this realization that blockchain, which I had been aware of for at that point about six years, um, and uh, NFTs were, were really going to revolutionize a lot of uh, the industry and marketing in general. And so that was created. The last two years have been nonstop. Um, the, both the pace and the volume have been incredible. Like we, I, I usually describe it as essentially it's five agencies running at full capacity. That's the volume of work we do. And it's really rewarding because you get to try everything. You, one day you're talking to, a, a, a sports franchise, another you're talking to, you know, um, it's, it's somebody in the arts category. It's, it's everything. Everyone's entering and all the big brands in the, in the, in the world 
are entering the Web3 category, either through NFTs or other mechanisms. So it's an exciting time to uh, to be doing marketing for Web2 transitioning to Web3. So how have you strategically gotten rid of and or reduced the amount of friction in the onboarding process that allows people to communicate at a level efficiently and not you know, create all this kind of adversarial back and forth between agencies and, and clients? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. So um, I, I guess I take a little bit of learning from you know being in charge of marketing at, at a brand and dealing with agencies. We skip the fluff. I mean, it's most big agencies will present to you. You know, they'll at least waste twenty minutes of a call talking about how they arrived at the the concept they're about to present to you. None of that. We're not wasting your time. Your time is precious. I'm not. I don't need to explain to you the 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 logic of why we, we arrived at it. If you want to know, we'll tell you, but we're just going to dive right into it. The other thing is a lot of marketers, and I'm, I'm kind of neurotic about this with my team, um, a lot of marketers face what I, what I usually call the marketer's dilemma, which is they're so in love with the you know practice of marketing that they want to do something that another marketer has not done. And they become you know enamored with this novelty aspect of marketing. This is really, really pervasive in agencies where you'll see agencies like tapping themselves on the back for an ad campaign just because the novelty of the campaign was something that had not been done before. <laughs> it's like you are not here to create a new type of campaign. You are here to solve a problem for the client. First and foremost, you're not here to you know pat yourself on the back. You're here to basically do the work, deliver results, measure to make sure you deliver results. If you do that, you've done a good job. Um, everything else is secondary. The novelty of the execution, the novelty of what you're presenting or the idea is is not necessarily what's going to move users onto the brand or convert. You need to, you know, uh, put the client first and foremost. So that's, a, an, I think, another ethos I've uh, tried to instill into the team because it's very easy for a marketer to just go off and do something that they've they're enamored with because it's different. Nobody's nobody's ever tried it. By the way, engineers fall into that trap too. I yeah. can't tell you how many times I've spoken to engineers and they're like, um, this product has never been built before. Well, maybe there's a reason why it hasn't been built before. You know? <laughs> That's the first maybe question you're asking. <laughs> yeah. exactly. I love that. I love it. It's like, it's almost, and, and I'm, I've fallen victim to that. Like this is, this is definitely not uh, unique uh, to certain people. Um, mm -hmm. But it, I guess at the end of the day, when you evaluate it, it's, it's kind of an ego stroke, <laughs> right? To say, I came up with a thing that's never been done and you might get misplaced validation from a client because they've never seen it before. So they might get caught up in the novelty of it. But when the results come back and you're looking at engagement metrics and you're like, why didn't that work? Right. It probably has nothing to do with the novelty and has everything to do with you're not connecting with your core audience, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. providing a path for them to engage with your brand in some way, right? Yeah, yeah, 100%. And the thing that's kind of pervasive about this and it's really important for agencies not to fall victim to it, is that it takes time away from the clients. Every minute you spend promoting the concept that you have, I mean, I'll be honest, I've been in, in meetings with agencies on the client side where I'm being pitched, you know, concepts. And, and we go through the concept and then I'm pitched the results. And it's like, well, this is, 
you, you are you are basically promoting the fact you have this novel idea more than the product itself. The product is not even secondary, it's ter- tertiary. That is not the role of an agency. The role of an agency is understand the product and the brands as well as the, the client as much as you can. Of course, the client usually has you know more information, but you, it is your job to be to onboard yourself. If you don't care about the category or the product, you shouldn't be marketing it. Like, don't market something you're not passionate about. First of all, right. So, if you're passionate about the category, which is why we focus in emerging tech and, and blockchain, learn it, understand it. So you get on a call. You don't have to be taught NFTs and blockchain and the genesis of all of this and why it will change the world. You're on the same page, right? You're passionate about it. Then build, uh, help them build campaigns and products that will actually onboard users. Uh, and and don't do it for your own sake. Do it for the client's sake. They're the ones that are, you know, paying you to do this. So, yeah, that's the whole mindset behind Block Awesome. I love that. And I, I like that you just kind of cut through the bullshit, right? Um, and, and really get at the root of what you're offering. Because at the end of the day, people want a solution, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the process is beautiful maybe to you and your team internally. Um, but, you know, as long as the client is happy with the solution that you're proposing, that's great. Are there any other kind of um, maybe culture-based or value-based initiatives internally at Blockhouse that allows you to operate so efficiently uh, and so quickly? Yeah, so um, we have a, a fairly small team. We're about 30, and we're all global. So we fully decentralized. There's no main office. So um, I think that usually poses a challenge for a lot of companies. There's this debate of, you know, can you build culture in a, in a decentralized way or a remote way? And I think you can absolutely do that as long as you empower people. Uh, people need autonomy to deliver their best results. They need to trust. If you trust them enough to hire them, you should trust them enough to do the job. Um, and I think that kind of culture is, is part of Blockhouse where there's enough trust in everyone's uh, abilities to do the work that they, they deliver above and beyond. And the, the, because everyone started uh, roughly a, around the same time, there is this kind of sense of unity that allows people to be very, you know, there's no politics. I know everyone says that, but trust me, there's no politics at Blockhouse. Like, you know, you can't hurt somebody's feelings. It's just, you say how it is and it's fine. People move on and, and uh, they, they just use the feedback to build their best work. Uh, there's really, it's a rather amazing thing to have a team of creatives and technologists really without ego. And I, and I mean that. And if you want to challenge me on it, I'll introduce you to everyone in the, in the agency <laughs> and you'll see it for yourself. there is no ego at Blockhouse. And it's not because I, you know, uh, enforce that. It's just, it's just, it, there just isn't. Everyone works really closely together, even though they're very, very far apart. So that. That is, that, that's amazing. I, I, I find that I've been uh, going on this kind of tangent in my life with a, a recent uh, book published by a guy named Tim Urban. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a self-help book for society is <laughs> uh, the subtitle. And he talks about this high rung versus low rung thinking and how right now most of society is caught up in low rung thinking, which is, you know, the echo chambers of the world and the group think and Mm -hmm. almost demonizing people that disagree with you. And then he talks about high rung is this idea lab where you can go in and you can have thoughtful disagreement because that's Mm -hmm. how you come to the best conclusions. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you're really facilitating an idea lab at Blockhouse. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Everyone can chime in, uh, disagree, and then, you know, the, the resilience of a team is is actually measured by how many times you can disagree and, and not have people be offended, you know? Like, it doesn't weaken the team. Uh, that's that's really remarkable. Uh, and I and I could say that confidently. That's that's the case at Blockhouse. I love that. I love that. Um, well, you recently wrote uh, what I thought was an excellent article that kind of peels back the curtain uh, around certain large brands, Web2 brands that are about how they think about a Web3 strategy. Um, you talk about the engagement Ponzi, which is kind of the tagline there. Um, but really, the, the masterful part of it is that, you know, think short term thinking versus long term thinking, in my opinion, right? Um, and, and like what you have to do in order to actually facilitate a long term Web3 strategy inside the company. Uh, I'd love for you to expand on exactly how that like works within these companies. Cause I think it would be uh, very helpful for people, people to know, like there it's not just marketing, right? It right. goes so far beyond marketing in an ad campaign. Oh, hundred percent. So, <clears throat> you know, in 2021 and 2022, 2021 primarily, you know, I, I probably spoke to every sports franchise out there. Um, and I spoke to a lot of big brands, all their, you know, their, their whole teams were, certainly looking at the NFT space, right? And saying, how can we get into that? So I, I have a lot of insight into the psychology of what they were getting into and also the hurdles that they face. And take a brand like Coca-Cola, and I'm not you know, singling them out, just using them as a standard example because they're one of the world's biggest brands and greatest brands. A, a brand like that, in order to enter NFTs, they have to make a decision because an NFT is a product and it's not a short-term product. It is a long-term product. And so the discussion is, okay, well, there's this new thing called NFTs. We can make them, we can sell them. They're digital, uh, unique digital assets that people can buy, but you get to own them. And maybe it unlocks things in the future. But here's the, the, the rub, right? Coca-Cola is a massive IP holder of the brand and every asset it could create. So anything with the, with the brands, is part of its IP, it is going to naturally going to require the IP team or anyone in the, on the legal side to enter the conversation. So you've got uh, the the legal team that enters the room. You've got the chief revenue officer that enters the room because the chief revenue officer probably thought, hey, maybe we can sell digital assets. And absolutely they could, right? Yeah. So now, now you've got the chief revenue officer, you've got the legal team. The legal team is there because of legalities or the T's and C's, but also the IP rights and what exactly are we giving up, right? Because that's the question they're going to say, well, you know, what exactly do they own when they buy the NFT? That needs to be qualified. Then you've got the marketing team because it's a, it becomes a brand thing, right? So it's a big deal. Coca-Cola is entering the NFT space, right? Which blockchain are they going to use? Is it an energy efficient blockchain or not, right? So is it proof of stake? Is it proof of work? What, what exactly are you going to you know do about the negative publicity that may come from it and that means the communications team enters the room because the communications team is going to be like whoa 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 how many complaints are we going to get on social media how many you know bad articles i'm going to have to like counter with with briefing journalists because it's a big deal so they're in the room right then you've got god knows how many agencies that they use to (laughs) you know help them along and then at the end of the day everyone looks at each other like Okay, we're really going to do this? Yes, we're going to do it. Okay, who's going to create the assets? Oh, interesting. We need assets, 
right? What kind of assets? Well, they could be images, they could be videos, they could be animations, they could be 3 ds it could be games. Like, what is it? And then everyone looks at the marketing team because the marketing team makes ad campaigns all day long, right? They're like, hey, you guys know how to do this stuff. And the marketing team's like, well, yeah, yeah, we could do it. We'll make some really cool, you know, assets. But here's the thing. The marketing team is prepared to create campaigns. These are focused, you know, production runs. Producing videos and assets is not easy. Like, you do have to go through a very rigorous legal process, make sure you got usage rights and everything, like we spoke about early on in the discussion. So the marketing team says, yeah, let's do it. We'll get the first, you know, round of assets prepared. Now, here's the thing. An NFT is forever, right? (laughs) And you're selling an NFT for, let's say, $100. Let's say $1,000. And then they'll sell in the secondary market for, let's say, $5,000, right? You've got to somehow meet the expectation of the user who bought it first and the user who bought it second. Because it is the Coca-Cola brands that you're representing. And now you've just entered what I call the engagement Ponzi because what the user wants is either some type of value or some type of utility. And you could think of this, them as the same utility is value. And the most basic form of utility is entertainment. Now the marketing team of most big brands can produce assets that will really be beautiful and engaging um, and probably worth quite a bit, but they can't do it forever. And certainly they're not set up to, to just produce every month, just a, a run of NFTs and, and additional content. And so it's a very long-winded answer to your question, but uh, this is what, what a lot of brands can fall victim to if they just enter without a strategy. And the, the solution is fairly straightforward. The solution is think long-term from an architecture standpoint and realize that there is no brand and I really mean that there's no brand in the world that can meet the exponential expectations of its user base that's entering a Web3 category um, without the support of the community itself. It simply does not work. It does not scale. The beauty of decentralization, it's everyone's participating in it, it scales uh, in, in that sense. A brand that enters the space needs to first and foremost create these communal areas where the community can entertain themselves. That provides a baseline value for anyone entering the, the, the engagement, and then it's manageable. Without that, you've already lost. Like, trust me, you may not know it, but you cannot keep up the engagement Ponzi. It's not sustainable. And by the way, producing assets from, from a marketing standpoint is not cheap. You know, whatever, you know, revenue you generate from sales of NFTs, you'll quickly burn in making videos, making you know, special activations, et cetera. So it is vital to have the community uh, engagement part of it, whether it's through a forum, whether it's through Discord connectivity, what what have you, um, in order to make it sustainable. So. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's very beautifully put. I mean, it's one of the differences that you'll see between Web3 communities that last, whether it's around an artist uh, or a PFP collection or a Web2 brand that has entered the space is that it's self-sustaining. Mm-hmm. Um, I've experienced that a little bit uh, in Zen Academy, uh, having joined Zen Academy, where it 
there's just the right amount of hands-on from the people that are leading the brand or leading mm -hmm. the community to allow the community to take it off in their own little tangent and yep. create, you know, founder sides and, you know, people that are still trading NFTs. There's still plenty of people doing that. And there's people that are trying to boost their social media game because they want to become more of an influencer because they realize that they can add more value if they've got more followers. Right. And like, all these little self-sustaining parts of the community are just being facilitated by the overall Zen Academy team. Um, and I know that you have some unique thoughts about community powered entertainment and what that might look like from a game perspective. Um, and as we are publishing this, I know that you're going to be having a big announcement. So I'm going to let you kind of tell us a little bit about what you are, are working on and launching and, um, and yep. yeah, that'd be great. So um, I, I think the, you know, this kind of realization that NFTs need inherent uh, community support, which I think most in Web3 understands, right? And most successful artists that have created uh, NFTs and, and really been successful in the space have built communities first. Uh, that is inherent to the spirit of Web3. And that realization led me and, and the team to, to kind of really focus on gaming um, because gaming is this is the is the richest form of community entertainment or interaction, right? So if you're going to build these common areas where people can go in and interact with each other, uh, if you have some gamified aspects of it, then they'll really entertain each other, and they can, you know, uh, maybe play multiplayer games uh, against each other. And that kind of realization led us to essentially launching what we're we're launching uh, actually today when when the episode. Uh, goes live. It, it's a, a new division uh, called uh, Gojira Labs, which is dedicated to game. It's a game studio that builds Web three uh, games. Now, here's the thing: with Gojira Labs, we are not bringing NFTs to games, which m a lot of people have tried. It doesn't work. Uh, continue to try. Yeah, yeah, and they continue to try. We are bringing games to NFTs. It's a big difference. You know, a lot of the the gaming space, which I, I'm a big believer that gamers stand to, to gain the most from Web3 and, and this decentralized ethos and ownership of their digital assets. Um, but they're uh, rightly so tired of being monetized. Okay. There's just, they've gone through every monetization scheme there is. And now they see NFTs and they think, okay, so you just want to monetize me further, right? It's just a new way to monetize me. Like, I don't want to, I don't want that. I already buy your gold. I don't want that. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, in the case of Gojira Labs and the game that we're building, which is very exciting, um, we're actually bringing utility and entertainment to the most popular PFP NFT collections. And it's through something that we've uh, incubated in-house called an animatronic NFT. And I'm very, very proud and excited about it because you think of a, of a PFP NFT, and I, I'll use a Bored Ape as an example. A, a holder of a Bored Ape has this thing to, you know, they can show it off and it's it's an amazing piece of IP, you know, I'm not detracting from it at all, but it is static, right? With animatronic NFTs, uh, an owner of a Bored Ape will be able to spawn an animatronic NFT. Uh, and only they can spawn their animatronic NFT and it'll, it'll carry the same traits uh, from the metadata. And the beauty is that our, our technology allows you to build out the full character. We have this skeletal uh, structure that we call 
uh, Guji, which is this gooey kind of skeleton. It's very cool. Um, you'll see the assets when we go live. But it's a very flexible skeletal structure that uh, extrapolates the rest of the uh, character, right? And fairly accurately, I, I'll say. Um, and it allows you to actually uh, have mobility of the uh, of the NFT. So what you end up with is a an animatronic NFT that's associated with the NFT itself, but it's a full body version of it, and it's designed so that in the game engine it will actually build out and it will be anim- it's something that you can animate and something that you can actually use. So all that to say, the PFP collections are about to get a lot more interesting because. Uh, we're going to have, you know, a board ape fight a punk. That's going to happen. Like, it needs to happen. Uh, and we're the ones who are going to bring it to life with the uh, the product that we're building. So we're very excited about that. I love that. I love that. And so I guess you're giving people the ability to, tr- like, I mean, one of the one of the big uh, driving factors in, um, in PFPs is that people are considering it part of their identity. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, they see themselves as their board ape or their dead fella or their crypto bean. Those are these cute right. little guys right here in my background um, because of whether it's the community or the characteristics around it. Like I have a dead fella that has a, a, a vest. Right. And I consider myself a tech bro. Right. Like uh, I fully embrace that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why I picked that one. Um, you know, and so there's just certain aspects that people use around the identity as identity layer, but then you're taking it a step further and you're saying, Hey, if you really want to be this person, you mm-hmm. should be able to be that an avatar of that person and customize it to an extent that truly reflects who you mm-hmm. are. It honestly reminds me of the one game that, um, that I've been able to, uh, sustain playing on Oculus, which is mini golf. Mm. Um, because of the social aspect, mm-hmm. I can play with my friends in New York, LA, and Miami at the same time. Right. And I can tell when they bend over, when they just right. missed a shot or when they throw, jump up in the air, when they made a great shot and you're doing the game, but really I'm there because I'm hanging out with my friends. Right. Exactly. And that that's community powered entertainment in my opinion. So where, where will people be using uh, these characters? Um, are you also creating that, um, or are you relying on partnerships or integrations, or how's that going to work? So at the at the launch, we're we're creating uh, we're launching one game, which is a running game, um, and but we do have other game concepts in the pipeline. Um, we do want to hear from anyone who wants to partner and uh, integrate because I think it, it needs to scale. Um, and so we would love to collaborate with others, uh, that's for sure. But at the start, we're hoping to, first of all, all these PFP communities have have great communities. All these PFP projects have great communities. That's one thing they've done really well is foster the sense of community, the successful projects at least. And the beauty of it is that they're like sports teams. They're, they're very tribal. They've got their own ethos and you love it, right? They're, they're their own little ecosystems. Well, guess what? I want to see, I want to pit each ecosystem against each other in a playful, really fun way. I want to see which ecosystem, you know, ranks highest in the scoreboard. There is this inherent desire to utilize the community and, and the, you know, the, the NFTs themselves to get some entertainment out of it. And I think we'll be able to, to do that with the game that we're building. Um, 
and very critically, uh, the, the, the wonderful thing of, about animatronic NFTs is once you spawn it, you could use it in many different games. It's not like it's just, you know, specific to that game. No, you could use this in many different games. And if somebody builds a social platform that or a metaverse of sorts, you know, that's not a, a great word nowadays, but still a meta, let's call it a metaverse of sorts yeah. um, that has animatronic NFT compatibility, you'll just be able to connect your wallet and have your character right there. That's the beauty of it is you have... Uh, portability and interoperability with these animatronic NFTs and you have mobility of the character. That means you can play it in a game or you could just interact with your friends. And I mean, personally, I'm looking forward to the fight game. So at first we're going to be launching with a a running game where you'll literally be able to race uh, your friends, uh, your PFP NFT friends. And uh, then we have a fight game where you literally be able to fight one versus the other, which is going to be awesome. And <laughs> Sounds like Mario Party <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> I love yep. that. And, and then we also are looking at other, you know, games like poker, et cetera. Uh, so, yeah, it'll be very fun. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think every, a, a lot of the communities that have lasted have been on this journey of like, how do we get out of a typing relationship mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, inside a discord and get people to interact. And personally, I am a, you're one of your biggest advocates because I hate typing. I, I, whenever I meet somebody, I'm like, Hey, do you want to get on a video call? Do you want to chat? And I know in this space, you know, sometimes that can be forbidden mm-hmm. because of the pseudonymity or anonymity associated mm-hmm. with who people are. But I just find it so much more engaging to sit there and have a conversation while talking to people mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to typing. I feel like I lose some of mm-hmm. what's up here to when I translate it down to the keyboard. So that sounds Yeah, awesome. I mean, I think there's, it, it will, I believe it will definitely strengthen the community sense and spirit to be able to just compete against each other, you know? Yeah, in it's a playful a, way. In a pl- playful way, yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Um, well, I'm excited. I'm glad that you're launching this now. And, um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, as as you engage with all these different communities, like, happy to support you in any way I can, because I want to see something like this succeed, because it's building sustainable relationships, mm-hmm. right? It's playing the long term game, um, which I don't feel like uh, you, I mean, some people can, I, I do have some friends that have built long-term great relationships inside of discord solely, mm-hmm. right? Like never having talked in other, in other ways, but for people selfishly like myself, um, that like are looking for like that more interactive kind of like in the background, kind of playing the game, but also socializing with people. Like, I feel like that'll just add a ton of value. Yeah. I mean, I could tell you, we, um, we launched a beta uh, under Blockhouse. We launched a beta game called Bloxer, and you could actually see it on online. It's it's live. Uh, it's one level, and it's really it's a it meant to be a funny game where you fight against uh, a rug puller. That's the the boss level. So the boss. <laughs> level. So, and one of the one of the players that you can select is a, a were doge. So a doge that's like a werewolf, like a hunchback like werewolf. It's really hilarious stuff. We launched it, uh, and I, I helped like actually get the game off the ground. And I have not defeated the the, the rug puller. You have I've not, not been defeated able... the rug puller. What are you doing nope. on this interview, man? Get in there. Let's beat that rug puller. <laughs> I have not defeated it, and yet most in my team have like you know the highest score 
I'm like, how are you doing? Because I've seen how the game is built. I've looked at all the, you know, the mechanics of it, and I still haven't done it. So, you know, that's the beauty of it. Some people are just really good at games, and some are not. And you know, you'll find out, and it'll, it'll be fun to compete. So, yeah, I've actually had some discoverability around that amongst my group of friends as I watched them play Dookie Dash for yeah. Board Apes, and it's like eventually, like some of my friends would try it for hours and hours, and they're like you know, Hey buddy, like you're obviously way better at this than me. Like, can you, like, how are you doing this? And it's just, you don't know what it is. Maybe it's just from playing a lifetime worth of games, but some people are just better at video games. I remember playing mortal Kombat back in the day. Sometimes people are just better at, you know, doing the fatalities and (laughs) jamming buttons. Um, I do have like one final, uh, closing, uh, question I want to ask you, or other than my traditional closing questions, you've done a lot with the Tezos blockchain. Mm-hmm. Um, it's near and dear uh, to my heart and my my little community's heart because we find it to be so raw uh, mm-hmm. and so much about the art. But one of the most interesting things that I've, I've heard you speak about in the past is the fact that it's actually catering to both the art community and corporate brands at the same time and the power of those two. Do you mind elaborating on that just a little bit? Yeah. So, uh, Tezos is a really special and unique, uh, project in that. And, and I remember talking to people about, so if you speak to artists, they'll say, well, you can't go corporate. Um, and, and corporates don't really care so much about whether you're kidding to artists, but artists really care if you're, if you've gone corporate, it's just, it's, it's a mindset, right? But the reality is that you can and you should serve both as much as possible. If there's a need that can be solved with the technology, then you should solve it, right? There's no there's no reason why you can't have two lanes on a, you know on a highway, right? The fast lane and the slow lane, or however you want to refer to them as. There can be multiple uh, targets of acquisition for users, and one of them is very mainstream, and the other one is a little bit more niche, and it's quite actually quite difficult to balance the two, right? Especially, it's difficult to grow both without disrupting the smaller audience, which is, tends to be more sensitive to the commercialization aspect. But I think uh, Tezos has done a really good job, and it's it's part of its ethos to like uh, the organic community growth and empowering artists. And also, it's, there's this real punk vibe about Tezos that I think really helps. Um, and there's this obsession with decentralization that kind of fuels that punk vibe and, you know, kind of self-sufficient uh, uh, aspect from all the users in the, in the community. I think the, the thing that gives it its rawness in terms of the artist community is Hikanuke as a project started out of Brazil by, uh, a, you know, a single developer who just decided to program it. You know, like, that's amazing. It grew to be the biggest by volume uh I think bigger than OpenSea at the time, actually, in terms of volume of NFT transactions. And then it just, poof, just disappeared. And at the time, people were like, oh, my God, how can that happen? Like, it's Web3. It shouldn't disappear. And everyone should be thanking the the founder of Hick and Nuke for doing that, even though I don't know necessarily that he intended to do that. But he taught a very valuable lesson to the whole category, which is don't take it for granted, right? And by the way, this is the whole point of Web3. If it goes off you're now responsible for bringing back up. And the community did. They brought it back up in multiple iterations and they survived that. And it made it more resilient. Just like when you break a, you know, uh, a bone in your body and it, it fuses back together, it's stronger at that, at that joint. 
Um, that's exactly what happened with the artist community in Tezos. And it kind of solidified this, this ethos. And yeah, it's been growing ever since. We took that rawness and we put it at our puzzle. It's one of the contributions we made to the space uh, because we wanted to celebrate that you know, incredible talent. And we felt it deserved a big platform like our Basel uh, in order to, to really fully celebrate it. And I think it worked very well for, uh, for the category. Um, at the same time, you know, there's plenty of initiatives within the Tesla ecosystem to explore commercial uh, use of NFTs through the big brand partnerships. Uh, and I think the latest one, which is Manchester United, has been fairly successful at onboarding tens of thousands of people. So, you know, you can actually do both. Yeah, you can. And, and it's funny because the same, it's almost like the same reasons that this organic community of artists have you know, migrated to and some exclusively, you know, minted on Tezos is a lot of the same reasons that, you know, corporates enjoy it as well. It's cheaper to mint on, it's more energy efficient, so they can consider those ESG aspects that look really good from a from a publicity standpoint and from an environmentally conscious standpoint. And uh, from what I understand, there is uh, a lot more functionality that makes it less likely that someone's going to fork your blockchain, right? Yeah. Um, I know that you have touched on this a little bit in the past. Is there what specific aspects of of Tezos make it uh, like less likely to be forked? So the, the Tezos is known as the blockchain that you know can evolve. It's uh, it's its core value prop is that you know looking at Ethereum and, and Bitcoin and how many forks they've experienced. Uh, it Tezos has a built-in mechanism that allows court you know decentralized coordination to submit proposals to upgrade the software, the actual protocol itself, and any aspect of the protocol itself. It's not limited. So it, it sounds a little bit crazy to say, but technically somebody could submit a proposal that kills the blockchain, like shuts it off. It's completely possible, unlikely that it would get accepted, but it's possible, right? And that's the wonderful thing about the way it's designed is it effectively has a governance mechanism that the uh, the validators of the network can vote on certain uh, software upgrades. And once they agree to proceed with, or they can of course reject it, but if they agree to proceed, then it gets automatically deployed. Each cycle is about three months. So Tezos has upgraded, I believe 11 times, um, and it's going through the, its, its next uh, upgrade very, very soon. Um, and yeah, that's just part of the, the the mechanism. It's what makes it really special and resilient is that it can upgrade itself roughly every three months. That's great. So that's almost like they built in uh, the governance ahead mm -hmm. of time. Um, yeah. such it was that the first one to, to have that incorporated into it. And um, yeah, and it was also, I think, the first proof of stake blockchain that had governance. Uh, and it was from the beginning. So it was ahead of its time uh, in many ways. I love that. I love that. Uh, great way to, to hop into our, our closing questions here. I ask every guest these same questions. Uh, the first one is, how do you describe Web3? Uh, Web3, well, um, it's about empowering users uh, and and reimagining what, what life digitally can be. And what I mean by that is there's all these platforms that there's this tendency of centralization of control that's in nature, in everything. Uh, things tend to centralize because centralization is very efficient. There's no denying that centralization is more efficient, right? 
But decentralization is much more resilient and much more favorable to the broader group that's participating in this collective act- activity. And so it's this effort of balancing out the, the, the power between the platforms, the incumbent platforms in the digital uh, landscape that we, we have currently, uh, and that tend to emerge with the users. That's a long-winded way of saying in Web3, the user is part owner and therefore they have more control of what happens in the future. Uh, they're not just along for the ride uh, and you know, just you know, going along with what the platforms want to do. They themselves have some form of control. And that's a wonderful thing, even though it's not quite as efficient as a centralized database, but it sure is a lot more resilient. So in the long term, it's much more stable. Um, ironically enough, even though it's a, it's a category that's known for sometimes being volatile, it's actually much more stable in the long term. Well, it's like we've got to go through the in, the unstable, volatile times to get to the stability because we need more adoption, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah, beautifully put. Um, the final question is forward-looking. Uh, where do you see yourself and Web3 uh, in the next 6 to 12 months? And where do you see yourself in Web3 in the next 5 to 10 years? So I, I always caution people to try to forecast beyond 6 months in this category because it's kind of playing <laughs> Russian roulette almost. Um, and so there is an inherent unpredictability. And it's not because of the category, by the way. It's because of the way governments and you know just society is reacting to the category itself. So there's different parameters that change. So I guess my hope, I, I'm not saying this is going to happen because, again, there's an unpredictability aspect. But I hope that in, let's say, 12 months, there will be more stability from a regu- and clarity from a regulatory standpoint. Uh, so that everyone know everyone knows the ground rules that we're playing uh, with, and I think we will see that. And I also think that we'll see massive adoption from a gaming standpoint. I think 2023 uh, and 2024 will be massive uh, for onboarding gamers into the category, and I'm, I'm hoping to be part of that. On top of that, for five to ten years. I hope to be able to look back on these early days and feel like I've uh, contributed as as well as my team has contributed positively to the adoption in the space. And uh, that means onboarding users, educating them. And certainly in 10 years, I would f- feel very fortunate if I'm still working with brands to package their beautiful products uh, and explain it to users in a easy to understand not necessarily engineering uh, specific way. So. Well, I'm excited to see what you build in the future because um, you're focused on such a key aspect of seeing this and any new technology, frankly, that comes out. Um, because, I mean, one of the things we forget about in Web3 is that it's simply supposed to be the third iteration of the web. Mm-hmm. I think blockchain and and you know having a system of record and ownership are a big part of creating the term for people to understand. But at the end of the day, it's like, how are we creating the third iteration of the internet? And will this be the backbone of it? Um, I think there's a lot of other technology that's going to have uh, a say in that as well and, and help augment that. So excited to, to build with you, Mark. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Web3 with me. If you enjoyed the show and want to help us grow, please hit the subscribe button on YouTube or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter at Zach underscore French 
underscore.